Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Hello and welcome back to the Will I Like It podcast. Today, my guest is Lars Marius Garshall. Apologies if I've butchered your name. No, welcome you did to not. The show. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so your um, sort of what you do is a lot of research into the history of brewing, right? So um, sort of more farmhouse beers, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's um, I'm really into what's called farmhouse beer. But when you get further back into history, uh, that's the only kind of beer there was. So in in that sense, uh, I'm researching farmhouse brewing all the way back to the beginning. So how far back have you gone? Well, uh, the the oldest find of beer that's known uh, Mm. is from 11,000 BC. So it's quite far back, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's quite it's... remarkable because the this find is from before people started growing grain. Okay. So the, these people were not farmers and they were not trading the grain, they were just harvesting wild grain and brewing beer from that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's quite it's yeah. quite a striking find. Mm. I mean, how how did you sort of get started with with your research because I, I gather from your your website that it started off as a I guess more of a hobby that's that's become yeah. currently what you do for a living I think yeah that's right yeah. um although the research itself doesn't pay very much um <laughs> uh, I I started you know just being interested in beer like a lot of people are mm. um this this is like a little bit little bit over 20 years ago and then Got more and more interested and started look, you know, traveling the world, trying different types of beer, learning more about them. Mm. Uh, and it was really when I discovered th- that farmhouse brewing existed, uh, the thing started getting more serious for me. Uh, because this tradition of the farmers brewing for their own use, uh, everyone knew that this had once existed, but I was just discovering that it seemed to exist all over the Nordic countries, basically. Mm. Uh, and and these beers were brewed in completely different ways, and nobody seemed to know about it. And that's when I really started doing serious research. So what it, what was it that made you sort of take the leap and and go from, I don't know, what did you do for a living before? I was a software engineer. Oh, that's a quite a change. It was quite a change, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What made you take that leap? Um, 
it was basically that uh, as I got more and more into this research, I mean, I, mm. I started doing quite a lot, like one week of ethnographic expedition every year, uh, going to archives and collecting their documents, uh, plus a lot of reading and, and doing mm. interviews with people. And I was just amassing so much material uh, yeah. that was new to everyone. I felt I, I can't just sit on this. I have to get it out into the world. So essentially that was the reason. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Do, do, yeah. You enjoy, do you enjoy that? Is it is it better than software engineering? It is better in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, I'm much more in control of my own time mm. and it feels a bit more like I'm doing something important, which uh, perhaps I wasn't before. Um, but it was really this this overwhelming itch that I had to deal with. I, I, it wasn't, in some way, you could almost say it wasn't a choice. I was, my uh, my inclinations forced me to do it. It's like your destiny. In a way, I guess. <laughs> if you're sort of that way minded, then yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, it certainly is destiny in the sense that it's something that you di you didn't deliberately set out to do. Just circumstances force you to do it. Yeah. 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 So I absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, my background is as a historical reenactor, but actually I'm a painter and decorator. Right. And that's still my day job at the moment. Um, but the reenactments led for sort of more towards recipes and writing cookbooks. Um teaching people to cook right. from the saxon and the viking period um so kind of kind of a similar similar path really it's um yeah a hobby that although i guess your over. your past experience might be more relevant to you right it's useful for reenactment i suppose make it look What's nice that? and appealing and so on <laughs> your your background as a painter and decorator yeah. uh we don't tend to work with paints too much with the with the reenactment no, stuff yeah, yeah. Um, my wife does some painting, but that's more um, like manuscript work. Oh, um, writing that kind of thing. Um, mm. So yeah, she's more into that. But because I do it for a living, I kind of go more down the food route and the, and the the brewing. Yeah, um, yeah. So we've got yeah. um. <clears throat> sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say dealing with the, or reenacting brewing from you know way back in the past. That's not. Well, depending how you see it, that's not easy mm. because there's so little evidence or it's very easy because you can do anything you want and there's no evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could go either way, really. It's, yeah. um, I mean, the food's the same, isn't it? We don't have an awful lot of evidence. We know what the ingredients mm. were. We know what equipment they had. How that was put together on a day-to-day -day basis is kind of the best guess. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. And like you say, with brewing, if you're doing it from household to household or farm to farm, it's going to vary quite a bit, I would imagine. It certainly did like 100 years ago. Um, brewing in Norway, for example, types of malt that they used, uh, brewing processes, even the like the herbs, the type of grain, mind boggling variation, really, with with, with mm -hmm. some some things that were common pretty much everywhere, but but on top of that, huge variation, yeah. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so when you've done your research into the more historical beers, has there been anything 
that you found really surprising, like any big difference between modern brewing and, and the historical, or is it very much the same? Um, well, I mean, even the farmhouse brewing that exists now, the people do, you know, today is very, very different from commercial brewing. Uh, mm. And it's, it's those interest uh, or differences that sort of drew me into this in the first place, because if it was the same beer, it wouldn't really be very interesting. Um, but it turns out a lot of them are brewing in ways that uh, the textbooks say you can't do. Right. So, of course, for me, that that was super interesting. So you, you get like a whole bunch of different questions at the same time. Like, so what, what does it taste like? Uh, mm. How does it work? I mean, wh what's wrong with the textbook when it says you can't, you can't do it? And clearly you can. Uh, and, and how did they come to do this in the first place? And it's just uh, this curiosity really drew me into it. Mm. So have you done much research into sort of recreating some of the recipes or the, the, the things you've come across? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for the stuff that's happening now, uh, you mm -hmm. can just go visit the brewer and brew with them and see what they do and to try the result. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, a, a traditional farmhouse brewer will typically make 150 liters each time. And I live in a <laughs> normal house. I can't make 150 liters. It's just impossible. Uh, so that means you have to try and translate their recipe to different equipment. And it's much harder than it seems. Mm -hmm. Even though you've seen the whole thing done you know biochemically how it works it's still hard to get it right hmm. and and, uh, uh, part of the problem is that uh historically uh you know now when if you buy brewing ingredients they are standardized and you know exactly how much sugar you will get out of this type of malt how much bitterness there is in these hops but when people mm. were producing their own ingredients, this wasn't the case. And they also had no thermometers. So uh, there are no recipes and there, there, mm. is no, there are no standardized approaches, if I can put it that way. So that makes it much harder to, to yeah. sort of take what they are doing and translate it to a different context. Mm. So some people <clears throat> say things like, well, you know you've hit the right temperature when the kettle starts singing. It's emitting a specific tone. Well, I mean, I'm using a kettle that's like one tenth the size, even less than that, and it's not suspended over a, a wooden fire. It's not going to sing. Mm. So, yeah, things like that. So then, then going back sort of to to sort of my period that I'm doing with mm -hmm. the Vikings and the Saxons, I know a lot of people are sort of against the idea that they would have used hops in beer. Oh, that, well, that one's easy to answer. Um, we have lots and lots of hop finds from, from the Viking period, uh, mm. from the UK, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, even Russia. Mm. Um, there's even an archaeological find where they found a, um, a bronze ladle in a grave, uh, with, with hop seeds in it. So they, they think there, there was a drink, uh, flavored with hops, uh, in this ladle. Unfortunately, mm. it was it was contaminated before it was excavated, so they don't really know what type of liquid, what type of drink it was. But it seems it seems to have been um, made with hops. There's also mention of hops in the Viking laws, for example, uh, regulations on hop growing. So, 
it seems it seems very clear that they were using hops, but I think it's it's worth bearing in mind that a millennium later, not all of the brewers in the same area were using hops. Most of them, but not all. So it goes back out of fashion again. Uh, well, I think maybe it never uh, broke through completely. I think it's been a, a you know. Yes, there were people in the Viking Age using hops in the beer, but I don't think they were all doing it. Maybe it was a minority. We don't know. But uh, it seems that maybe it spread sort of gradually. And, and even in the present day, it still hasn't taken over completely, basically. That, that's yeah, my guess. Yeah. We've got the big, uh, was it Graveny? Yes. Down by London, where they've got the ship full of of hops, or they think was carrying hops at the time. It's, um, it's, it seems really likely that somebody was trading hops in that ship, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, then I, but I wonder whether they were doing it for the beer, or one thing that a lot of people don't realise is you can eat the hops. Well, this wasn't hop shoots that they found. It was really the cones. Uh, okay. So I think there is good reason to, to think that it was it really was used in beer. And there is a second find from York uh, where they found uh, hop cones and also uh, also grain. And it mm. the, the reasonable interpretation seems to be probably brewing. I mean, it's not certain, but, but it seems more likely. Mm. Yeah. But it, it, it's true the hops were used for other things. So they think uh, it was used for making ropes, uh, possibly for dyeing cloth. And, and it's true, you can eat the shoots as well. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got some growing literally just outside the building here. Um, right. I did try to pick some before we started, but they're just just coming up at the moment. Um, they're but coming we tend up. To, they're, yeah, yeah, just about. Um, Where are you they living? Start to, I mean, in Wiltshire, the middle of uh, England. Okay, we have um, we have forty centimeters of snow, and it's like <laughs> nothing is growing. Absolutely nothing except the icicles. <laughs> I don't know. It's not quite that cold. I'm just having a look what the temperature would be at the moment. Um, we're at seven degrees today. Uh, okay, it was minus six this morning. Bit of a difference. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, we've we've had some colder weather lately, but it's warmed up enough that, as I say, the hops are just coming up. Um, and I tend mm. to use them a bit like asparagus, a bit yeah. like a cut and come again. And the more you pick them, the more vigorously they grow. Oh. But you still get your hops at the end as well. So you, you've kind of got the double benefit of you've got an early crop when there's not much else yeah. growing. Yeah, because I guess these shoots are only interesting if you want the plant to expand. And mm. once it's sort of grown to the right size, you probably don't want it taking over the garden. They grow very vigorously. <laughs> yeah, that's what um, everyone says. <clears throat> yeah, I can't remember what the, the full length of a, an established plant is, but it's a fair few meters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. they're even hard to get rid of. Uh, I read in an archive document where a Danish woman said that her grandfather pulled up the hops 50 years ago, mm. but they were still coming out of the ground in the same place. <laughs> they still hadn't gotten rid of them. Wow. That's but it's, 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 it's the roots, right? That really are the plant. And the mm. stuff that comes up every year uh, is just what it uses to um, mate with other plants, really. Yeah. So most of the yeah. most of the real plant and the stuff that lives from year, year to year is on the ground. So then 
you try and pull it up, but if you don't get everything, it'll just keep coming out of the ground. I think they're quite deep rooted as well, because you don't have yes. to water them in the summer or anything like that. Yeah, um, exactly. And we find they're really good sort of environmentally. They're they're great because insects love them. They're full of things like ladybird right. larvae. Right. And so you and then that attracts the birds and you know it's a right. great thing to plant even if you're not growing beer. Uh I actually tried to plant. I wanted um we had a tree next to the house and I wanted to uh, to have the hops climbing the tree because they're really parasites on trees. Uh, and I thought that would be kind of try and keep this tree under control a bit as well. Um, but it, when I planted it, it, it didn't grow. It didn't work. So I need to try again. I had the, I had, the shoot that I was using was too small, basically. I've planted right. a few, but I, I find the ones I've done under trees in the fashion you've said, thinking they'd grow up, are the ones yeah. that don't do as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're competing with the tree, I guess. Yeah, and if you've already got an established tree with the roots, I guess there's not enough yeah. room for them to, to spread out. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, then I learned that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we're all learning. That's that's uh, part of life, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, yeah, that's the fun. Yes. And it's, yeah, there's so many sort of little trails and ways you can go with with expanding your knowledge that yep. it's really difficult to do. I mean, <clears throat> I've only really dabbled a little bit with brewing with my Viking Age cooking, um, and it tends right. to be more, more things like meads. Um, and I've used more modern techniques to make beers that maybe would taste more historic. But I tend to use things like malt extract, which obviously is not how they would have done it historically, but it gives you an idea no. of the flavor. Well, I mean, like to, to, yeah, to really do it correctly, I mean, you need to, to start even not even from malt, but from grain, mm. uh, because they were all making their own malts as well. And, and that had a huge impact on the flavor. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's really quite a lot to ask. Uh, making malts takes a lot of time and a lot of space yeah so um but uh there are people who who still make their own malts and and their beers are nothing like what anyone else makes mm. that's that's really uh makes a huge difference yeah a lot more level of control uh yeah and it's also mm. um well i guess in a sense it's it's the, the commercial malt producers have obviously super control over what they're doing um mm. But when you make your own malts, you don't really have the same degree of control. And what it means is if, if you, you know, when you're making a modern beer, you pick uh, several types of malts and you sort of compose them together to, to get the right flavor. If you use mm. only one type of malt, it becomes very boring. But when you make your own malts, because the process is not so controlled, you know the grain at the outer edge say when you're when you're germinating it will mm. be colder than the grain in the center and there will be all these little minute differences throughout the batch that you're making so you don't get this uh, single note problem it's actually you get actually much more complex flavors from just a single type of malts but but the whole thing just winds up being very very different mm. And I guess it would vary year to year because I know with other things, even like honey, the flavors will yes. vary based on on what the bees are foraging. And obviously your plants and crops are going to produce slightly different product every year. So I guess you yeah. probably would never get the same beer twice almost. 
No, 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 you wouldn't. So um, people have been very clear that, that in a year with, with the optimal weather, you get far better beer than, than in a bad year. And this is stuff that the, you know, the modern industry evens out from year to year and sort of uh, they hide these fluctuations. But to a farmer mm. who only had his own grain, th this was this was very clear. So this even, uh, you know, stories where the, where the, the key plot point is that the, the, the weather that summer was so great and that was why the beer was so good and so on. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I've heard a similar thing. I had a cider maker on recently and he was saying um, about yeah. how we had such dry weather last year and so it was a really good year because the apples produce more sugar so you end up with yeah. higher alcohol content and, yeah, it all has that knock-on effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. And it would be the same with the hops. They wouldn't be the same from year to year either. Mm. So that that's one major reason why uh, when they were brewing, they were doing uh, most of it by tasting to see, to see how, you know, a modern brewer would, would uh, calculate beforehand how much sugar they expected to get, and then they would measure it and see if they got it right. But mm. the, the old-time brewer would be doing this by taste instead. And, and some people still do it that way. So you'd need that experience of past years of what worked, what yeah. didn't work, so that you can yeah. adapt it. But um, that, that's yeah. one that's one benefit that these brewers have over a modern brewer. So a modern brewer will, uh, you know, compose a recipe, brew that, then come up with another one, then brew that. But mm. the the traditional brewer makes only one beer, and they make it over and over and over and over again for you know decades. Yeah, and that of course helps them really hone in on on. Uh, and of course, when they started brewing, they didn't start from scratch, because their grandpa or their father was brewing the same thing. So, they were picking up all of that accumulated experience as well. Mm. Yeah. So seeing these guys brew is 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 quite interesting. They they really 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 know what they're doing. And then, uh, but anytime you try and ask them, why are you doing this? Mm. Well, ultimately, because grandpa did. They don't know why they're doing any of the things that they're doing, but it works. <laughs> so why stop? No, they don't, they're, yeah. they're not stopping, yeah. but, it, but it's really, <laughs> uh, it's made it very hard for people coming from the modern way of doing things to sort of understand and appreciate what it is they're doing. Uh, because mm. the whole... Uh, <laughs> your entire way of thinking about what you're doing is so different. And then their beer on top of that tastes, tastes really strange and different as well. So it's, uh, for people coming from modern beer, it's been quite a hurdle to get over. Mm. So in the Viking Age, how much did the equipment vary based on sort of modern equipment? Was it, was it a particularly different process? It was very different. Um, of course, it depends what you're comparing with, right? If you're comparing with a modern brewer, then mm. then it's like they are from a different planet. Uh, whereas if you compare with a modern farmhouse brewer, it's more similar, but still very different. So yeah, uh, all of the brewing equipment uh, was made of wood. Looked A lot of it looked like basically like a barrel where you sawed off the top. So that's that's the sort of vessel that you are working in, and um, some people had a metal kettle that they were brewing in. Yeah, 
but most people couldn't afford that. They were really, really expensive. So uh, if, if, if you've ever done uh, brewing from grain, mm. the, the, uh, the key step in the process you absolutely must do if there's going to be any beer is you have to heat uh, the malt and water mix to 65 degrees or more. Now, how are you going to do that if you don't have a kettle? That's quite, quite a, <laughs> that is yeah. actually quite difficult. So hmm. um, what they did was uh, they would make a fire and put rocks about you know this size in yeah. the fire and then have a wooden vessel with, with uh, water and malts in it and then drop pot stones into it to heat it up to the right temperature and get uh, extract the sugar from the malt. Hmm. So, uh, and that, of course, uh, creates a completely different flavor from what you get from a, from a modern process. And then the second thing that you, that you do in modern brewing is you boil for an hour. And doing that with hot stones is really, really awkward. And there's also uh, mm. no point. There's no reason to do it. So they, they didn't do that. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, modern farmhouse brewing, Mm. Half of the brewers today in 2023 still don't boil. So that's another thing that really made uh, these beers, you know, his, these historic beers, very, very different from what we're making now. Mm. But uh, it, it's clear that some people did brew with kettles, uh, but they must have been only the richest, basically. Mm. Yeah. To have the, the funds to get a metal pot. Or, yeah. yeah, there's there's uh, documentation from uh, 1350, for example, that the price of a brewing kettle was roughly two and a half cows. Mm. For an ordinary farmer, that's like, no, not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and on, on Norwegian farms, um, you know, you can imagine if they were brewing beer for a very, very long time, Using mm. hot, these stones every time, and they shatter in in the heat, and they also shatter when you know they're really hot, and you drop them in cold water, they fracture. Yeah. It sounds like a pistol shot, actually. It's quite mm. dramatic. Uh, of course, this uh, these stones accumulate, right? So on uh, on a typical Norwegian farm, when you start digging and you find these layers of, of shattered rock, mm. it's like one thousand five hundred cubic meters in in some cases. Like you need, what, 800 uh, garbage containers to remove them. <laughs> but, wow. but, it's, but it's literally a millennium of, of uh, hot rock brewing. Mm. That's something I've not tried, actually, is brewing with hot rocks. Maybe that's a future experiment. I, it's, I, it's look, it really looks interesting, and it's extremely mm. photogenic. So it's a real crowd pleaser, but... Uh, you have to be careful about what stones you use. Uh, sometimes types of stones will explode while you're heating them and, you know, shoot mm. little fragments of stone everywhere. So you want something that's um, mostly homogenous because it's when it heat up, heats up, if, there's, uh, if the different parts of the stone have a different composition, one part will expand more than another and bang. So sandstone, for example, is very good. Granite is also good. It could be so quite a dangerous, dangerous experiment, really. <laughs> well, I mean, what you can do is, you know, 
is you find some stones that you think, okay, these will probably work. Mm. Make a fire, put them in the fire, and just leave it alone. Stay away. Mm. And if they don't explode, then okay, this worked. You can use them. I've done a little bit with cooking in sort of pits and things where you chuck your right. rocks in. Yeah. Um, similar kind of idea, but then they're being buried. So if they do crack, they're underground. Yeah. So it's a relatively safe thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's in, in uh, the archaeological record, um, what, what the archaeologists refer to as brewing stone layers and roughly 1600. And they start in the middle of the sixth century, roughly. But then uh, uh, there are different uh, heat-shattered stones that are older uh, that appear in, in basically in circular sort of pits. And they have been assuming that those are remains of exactly the type of cooking that you're talking about. Um, but we also think that people brewed for in Norway for four and a half mm. thousand years by the time that the the proper brewing stone layers start. So, to me, it seems like uh, the I don't think the archaeologists have finished explaining this. Basically, mm. there's there's been several attempts. I've I've read a few papers where they tried to look for, for example. Um, remains of fat or or meat protein in these layers, and they didn't find them. And then there's another paper where they analyzed these layers and they found a lot of phosphorus. Well, that's a typical signature of grain. But this is this is uh, so this is my theory that it was used for for beer brewing. But uh, I don't think there's any archaeologists who's who would say yeah yeah absolutely that's not. Uh, perhaps it could be proven, but it's just a theory yeah. at this point. Yeah, I mean it's constantly evolving, isn't it? As more, yeah, more things are found, um, opinions change all the time. Yes, I, I, I was doing this book, <clears throat> and I did I did this diagram over time of uh, what cooking technologies that they have at different times in Norway, mm. and it's really quite hard just to find out. You know, when did they have ceramics, and when did didn't they? When did they have soapstone kettles? When didn't they? How big is a soapstone kettle? All this stuff. Um, mm. But then when I drew it, it was like, oh, but this can't be right. <laughs> it, the 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 layer of brewing stones and what we what we think we know about when they brew is like this doesn't fit at all. It has to be resolved somehow. But the answer doesn't yeah. have to be that those pits with stones were from brewing because there's other possible answers as well. Mm. So, but that will, it's going to take years to find out, I'm sure. Yeah, it's constantly evolving. And as new people come into it as well, they've got new ideas like yourself. Yeah. And that kind of feeds a little bit back into the research itself, doesn't it? Because then people, that, there's a good example. I've got a friend that thinks, you know, the um, the little spiral iron things that people cook little flatbreads on? I don't know what they're called, to be honest. Oh, uh, the small ones? <clears throat> Mm, like a, only, like a, oh, uh, and, okay. and people often think they cook bread on them. Um, but actually, I've, I know someone that thinks that what they might have done is used that for the heating process in a brewing. Um, oh. Rather than your hot rocks, because you'd heat the rod up and put right. the rod in. And then you could also uh, use okay. it to stir. Um, uh, 
Yeah. There is evidence from from nineteenth uh, and twentieth century of people using metal in exactly that way. Mm. Uh, but the the difficulty with that explanation back in time is that metal mm. was so ex- so expensive for anything. So mm. so people uh, used to believe. Now I'm talking farmers in the nineteenth century. Yeah. They used to ascribe all sorts of uh, magical properties to metal. So if you wanted to, uh, they were really worried about their beer being attacked by supernatural forces. Right. The, the real reason is the beer easily goes bad, right? And you, and you mm. don't know why. So they were blaming uh, supernatural creatures. And one thing that you would do is you would take a knife and you would stick it in the fermenter. Or you would take an axe and lay it on top of the fermenter. But, but it was really metal that was protecting the, the brew. Mm. And you know this... Um, Custom of hanging horseshoes over doors. Yeah, I've got one on my house, actually. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. to do with it being a horseshoe. It's just that it's metal. So the metal is then protecting the entrance to the house. And mm. if, if you look at uh, old Norwegian buildings, the um, you know you have the lock, and usually there, there's a, two metal bands that connect to the hinges and they hold the, the wooden planks together. Those get turned into really elaborate shapes, both coming from the mm. lock and from these bars. And again, these are ma- magical. Uh, people believe that these were protecting the door. But if you look at the rest of the house, there's absolutely no metal anywhere, no nails. Because they couldn't afford nails. That's really interesting. So, yeah, it's it's. this mm. is one of the things that when I started looking into... Uh, uh, the, the background and the tradition of brewing that really just stunned me. Like, you see how completely different the past was from our own time. Mm. So it's one of the really striking differences. And it's one of the things we see in reenactment as well is that everybody's got their cast iron cooking pot and everyone uses raised fire boxes that are like the one on the Bayer Tapestry. Um which is obviously to protect the ground. That's a more modern thing. Um, but yes. there is a lot of a lot of ironwork that goes around on on campsites. I, I'm guilty of it myself. Right. If if yeah. you look, if you look at a Norwegian farm, you know, 1800, the fireplace is just stone. Like the the, the cooking surface for bread, that's stone for the most part. Mm. Uh, yeah. The the uh, even the pots, you know, Viking age pots of mm. typical five to ten liter size, most would be stone as well, mm. soapstone. So and probably soapstone is expensive too because someone has to, you know, literally hack it out of the rock and transport it to you. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the modern stuff, I've got, you know, pots are quite expensive to get now. When you get these replicas, oh, that's nice though. But um, you yeah, sort of from a modern perspective, it's almost flipped because the pottery can be more expensive than the metalwork, and so a lot of people end up with these cultures yeah. and things. But yeah. uh, the pottery is another interesting thing because in Norway, uh, Norwegian uh, production of ceramics ends completely, roughly in the in the middle of the sixth century. It just stops. So 
like from the Middle Ages, there's almost no pottery that's been found, and it's all in the towns, mm. and it's all imported. So you're a normal person <laughs> even have pottery. But again, if you if you look if you look at you know, uh, I really recommend going to one of the Norwegian open air museums and looking at both the buildings mm. and the technology that they used. It was all based on wood. Everything was wood. And of course, wood was free, right? You just had to chop it down and carve it into what you wanted. Yeah, yeah. And even if you're not particularly good at carving, I'm sure you can make a bowl or something that's usable. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. But people, uh, a lot of people seem to have been very, very skilled at this. So mm -hmm. if, if you look at like a beer bowl, um, the, the simple ones are... They're really just bowls, and you know they've been turned not with with a modern. Um, I don't know the vocabulary for this in English, but they didn't use the modern form of a of a turntable that you would use for for carving wood. They had something like older, a lathe. But... Yes, thank you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have that. They had something yeah. that's called uh, which was more primitive, but it did the same thing. But if you if you look at the more complicated ones, you have uh, ones that are carved like birds. Mm. And then you know there's complicated cross hatchworks on the on the chest of the bird. You've got the feathers. You've got the head. You've even got the thing on the top, whatever it's called, the crest. Uh, and there's there's ones that are carved with um, horse head handles, and they have really lovely you know cross hatching in the eyes and the, yeah. So the, there were people who were very very skilled at this. Living in every village. All, all over mm. it was it was actually uh for many people a side uh income we spend the winter making these and then you know fill up a backpack and, and go and sell them somewhere mm. yeah that's interesting yeah 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 there's yeah. there's so much of this when you start to get into it it's just it's just crazy mm. So do we know much from, go back, bring it back to the beer again, because we've gone off a little bit there. Yeah. Um, do we know much about the kind of strains of yeast they were using? As far as, uh, <laughs> as, far as direct evidence goes, there's absolutely mm. nothing, like nothing whatsoever. What we do know uh, is that they had words for yeast. Mm. They, they, were, they were perfectly well aware that yeast existed uh, and they were deliberately adding it to the beer. So that means that they must have known how to keep it from, from beer to beer. Uh, but if you look at the modern period, uh, the equipment that people were using, you know, to, to keep the, the, the yeast in between brews was like mm. a piece of cloth, a ring of straw. Uh, just, you know, take a, take a trunk of a tree that's about this thick, chop it off like that. Put on the handle, and there's your yeast keeping equipment. That's all you need. Uh, you, you need you need some knowledge of how to do it, but it's mm. just a few simple rules of thumb, and and you're good. So so we know that they had yeast that was. Uh, we also know from in other ways uh, that it must have been domesticated. Mm. But what was it? We don't really know. Uh, we know that. Norwegian uh, traditional brewers today have a yeast that is unique to them that they haven't mm. been maintaining since forever. But is it the same that they had in the Viking Age? 
probably, but there's no there's no direct evidence. I guess going back, you would have had to have somehow caught the yeasts to begin with, wouldn't you? So a lot like making um, sourdough bread, where you have yes. flour and water, and then you get natural yeast that occur. So at some point, someone must have done that and found one that worked and just kept going. Yes, um, absolutely. That one alive. So, so it's it's thought that uh, originally you just made uh, you know the unfermented beer and it fermented mm. spontaneously because yeast is everywhere, mm. uh, and and you can do that now. It will work. Well, <laughs> it will uh, ferment <laughs> and become alcoholic. Uh, it may taste absolutely horrible, but but it, uh, at least I've, yeah. I've done it with apples. I've made cider that way. Which seems to work better, but then you have yeah. the the yeast is sitting on the apple already. Yes, yeah. Uh, so so that's easier in a way. Mm. But um, it seems that eventually what they figured out was if you don't clean, if you have a good beer and you don't clean the mm. fermenter, the next beer is also likely to be good. And they kept doing that. So there there are actually people in the world today who who maintain their yeast in that way in mm. South America. Um, and then eventually they they figured out that oh it's not the fermenter it's the sludge at the bottom and if you just keep some of that it'll work. But it, what we see what we see is that um, there's been extensive work done on the genetics of yeast and how different types of yeast are related to each other. And what you can see is that once people got hold of a type of yeast that they were happy with. They really hung on to it and they shared it with other people and, and it spread. So uh, most modern beer yeast belongs to a family that's called beer one. And and the sort of the oldest, it looks like they are the oldest uh, yeasts in that family are from Belgium and Germany. But there is there is a side branch from the UK, looks exactly like these yeasts at some point crossed the channel and then started developing and spreading in the UK. And then there is another branch in the US mm. as if, you know, it crossed the Atlantic and did the same thing again. And you can you can sort of see uh, with the farmhouse yeast something similar in Norway. So, so like you said, once, once they found something they were happy with, they seem to have been able to, to hang on to it and, and share mm. it with each other. And I guess if you were then migrating to another country and you had one that worked, you probably took it with you. Yes, very, very. You're likely. going to want to brew beer again. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> and uh, if you know you have a, a bit of uh, you know, a section of, of wood trunk with yeast on it, it's not difficult to bring. It's not large. It's not heavy. And the stuff is dried. It's going to keep for a good long while, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. We've actually got a local brewery. Um, and years ago, they had an issue with their yeast where someone killed it off. Right. And again, it was one of these traditional, they'd always brewed with it. And so right. they then, they had to start again. And of course, the people in the pubs noticed <laughs> because the flavor of the beer changed. Yeah. There's literally nothing they could do. Just someone had accidentally killed it off and that was the end of it. Yeah, this this happens to, to traditional brewers as well. And this used also to be a problem for uh, commercial breweries when they were maintaining yeast in the way that you you say. Um, and uh, usually the way that it would fail was that you were reusing the yeast and some mm. bad organism would get in and, and bad flavors would develop when this when this grew, right? 
And then all of your yeast would be contaminated. So the only way out would be to just throw everything away and get new yeast from someone else. And, and the first time that someone found a way out of that was, was late 19th century. That's when uh, the way the breweries are using yeast now effectively was invented and, and solved this problem. But it's not very long ago. It was 140 years. That's fairly recent. Yeah. yeah. And and people were stunned when when it was discovered that like brewers in Norway, Lithuania, Russia, and, and Latvia are... Mm still maintaining their own yeast. But but when you realize that, yeah, yeah, but everyone did that until 140 years ago, it becomes, it's just, a, it's just we who forgot how things used to be. It's, it's, it's not as remarkable as it seems. Mm. Or as strange, I guess, is a better word, because it is remarkable. Yeah. But then, yeah, it's, it's no different to the modern baker, again, keeping that strain of, you get a, a sourdough bread that works. You, well, you I, I would say there is a difference because, um, in you know, you when you make a, you can make a new sourdough starter anytime you want. Um, mm. you, just have, you just need flour. That's all you need, and it will almost always work. But the reason that it works is that you don't really care very much what kind of yeast it is because you do very very little fermentation in a bread. Whereas uh, in a beer, the whole product is defined by fermentation. Uh, so minute differences in the yeast suddenly become super important. If you, um, if you take a Hefeweizen yeast, a German wheat beer yeast, and you try to make an English bitter with it, it's not going to yeah. work. They're both from the beer one family, but your customers down yeah. the pub are going to go, what is this? Did they put... Did they put mashed bananas in the beer? What's going on? <laughs> so, um, the the um, the amount of CO two, you know, that mm. inflates a bread is just a little bit. But if you ferment the beer, and mm. when you think it's done, you put it in a barrel and you close the barrel, but you misjudged it and you put it in too early, you have a serious problem now. Yeah. <laughs> Either the barrel is going to literally explode, or when you open it, you're going to be showered in beer for like five to ten minutes before it calms down. That's like the, the, the amount home. of CO2 is just insane. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Now some of my home brews have uh, I've gifted bottles to people before, and they've opened the cap and. <laughs> yes. Yep. Mm. But uh, on on the on the web, you can find a uh, a video made in a Lithuanian village in the 1960s. It's it's a wedding, and you know people are doing wedding things and they're all happy. And after after 20 minutes, suddenly there's a there's this change, and there's this person who's talking into the in, in, he's speaking Lithuanian, so there's no telling what he's saying. He's talking into the camera. He's really concerned, and there's violent banging noises in the background and uh, mm. when i saw it i was like uh, there's some sort of violence and attack or something uh, and then uh, he he goes out of uh, out of view and you you don't really know what you're seeing but you work out oh there's a door and a window and there's something white inside the building and then shapes start emerging in this mist and it turns out to be two people fighting a beer barrel and the, the jet is so powerful that um, at one point, once, it, and this is when it started calming down, mm. one guy is on his hands and feet, all fours on the floor, and the jet pushes him sideways. 
He slides wow. sideways across the floor. And then one of them manages to get the bung in, and it's like, oh, peace and calm descends, and everyone's happy, and they're wringing out their jackets and laughing. And yeah. <laughs> But that, that gives you some idea of, of the... And, yeah. and, and again, this is like the last few percent of the fermentation. Mm. I'm going to have to look that video up now. I need to see this. <laughs> uh, I'll... I'll um... Yeah, I'll try to remember to send you the link, and if I don't, just just remind me, and I'll I'll get it for yeah. you. I have it. Yeah. yeah. So, do we know much um, about the strength of beer back then? Because you're talking about your different levels of fermentation. Do yeah. you know how strong the beers would have been brewed to? Uh, I think we can be absolutely sure that it would have been it would have varied massively, mm. um, and some beers were made deliberately so that you could drink a lot of them and not become drunk. Uh, and all, what people in later ages always did was they would make one beer and, mm. you know, you have the, you have the malts and, and you're running liquid through them and washing the sugar out. At one point, uh, there's so little sugar left in the malt that if you keep going, uh, you're going to weaken the beer that you're making and you don't want to do that. Mm. So then what they do is, well, they just keep running off, but they don't mix it with the stuff they already made. So you get one strong beer and one weak beer from the same uh, from the same malt. This is what's mm. called small beer. That's literally what small beer really is. Um, but you know, how strong was the strong beer? Well, ultimately, it would depend on how rich you were, and also how skilled you were. So in 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 nineteenth century Norway, or and also twentieth century. Mm. When you tasted somebody's beer, uh, you were really judging the person as a person because, you know, if you live on a small marginal farm, you have little grain and it's bad. And if you live on the best farm in, in, the, in the valley, you're going to have a lot of grain and it's going to be good, right? This, mm. But this is your, I just described your status in society, right? Not just your grain. And then, then there's your skill as a maltster. Your skill as a brewer, how generous are you? Are you going to put in a lot of water? Are you not? Uh, mm. So when so when when people taste this beer, it's like an, an instant judgment of, of really all of you. So to at, at least at that time to serve a weak beer was uh, it was shameful. I've I've and I've had people tell me things like, well, you know, on that farm. You know, they always make this weak beer. And, and his dad was the same before him. They just wrote off two generations of this family in, in a couple <laughs> of sentences. Wow. So, so I, and very likely this will have been the same earlier, right? But people starved to death <laughs> in the Viking Age. So this was, mm. some people will have been forced to use bad grain and, and a just a little of it. And that's what they had, right? And some people... You know, like the slaves, they didn't have beer at all. So there will have been huge differences. Because there's also the idea that people drank the small beer instead of water because it was safe to drink uh, when the water wasn't. Well, I mean, that was true, for example, in Denmark mm. into the 1950s and 60s, literally. Um, the, the Danish word for, for small beer was daily beer. It was what they drank all the time. Uh, but in Norway, that wasn't the tradition. Um, it seems that the Norwegians didn't have enough grain 
perform. So they were, they were, when they brewed, they would make the strong beer, they would make the weak beer, and they would drink the weak beer with the food as long as it lasted. But that might be a month, and then then you would be out of it. So so you might have this, you know, only in January perhaps. So what they what they drank in Norway as the as a normal uh, drink against thirst was, uh, you know what whey is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's byproduct of cheese making. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 basically all the whey that you made, you would collect mm-hmm. it in a big vat. Yeah, and it would just sour awfully. And then you would you would take some of that and mix it with water, and that was your drink. Okay, I'm trying to envision what that might taste like. <laughs> I don't really know either. Um, yeah. I ha- I've had some things made by uh, modern restaurants that were similar. That was surprisingly nice, much nicer than you would think. Um, I, I should add that this was also a traditional <clears throat> drink in Scotland and Orkney into the 20th century it's called blonde which is actually oh, the Nor- that, actually yeah yeah, yeah. it's the, it, that's the norwegian word uh blonde right. in norwegian means mm. to mix and of course it's because you took the whey and you mixed it with water right but it's only soured so that's not fermented at all that's right that's right yeah okay. i might have to try that yeah it, it, it yeah. sounds really interesting um but of course it's not trivial to make. You've got to make a cheese first. Mm. And um, yeah, so if you're interested, uh, I managed to find a recipe, not really a recipe, but something that explains some of the tricks that you should know when you make it. Mm. So I, it's just a few sentences. I can translate it and, and send it to you. That'd be great. Yeah. 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 Have an experiment with that. I'm always looking for ways to use up the way as well. Because when I'm doing courses, we always make cheese and uh yeah i mean i was looking at brunust not too long ago yeah but um <laughs> what you just what you just said i think is super mm. interesting uh because i know that modern uh dairies are in the same position the, mm. you're making cheese and that's great and then you've got all this whey and you don't want to you don't want to just waste it right yeah so this becomes an economic issue right and and it will will have been the same historically Mm. And I would be very surprised if that wasn't part of the motivation for making this drink in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've drank it straight from making cheese. You get it in the bowl. It's right. Warm, warm, cheesy water is how I describe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so cold, cold sour, diluted cheesy water. How's that? Yeah. Well, that's one to find out. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. would that would be interesting if you do it. I'd be interested to hear about that. Oh, definitely try it. I tr- I tried to make Brunost myself. Um, uh-huh. So I ended up, I think it was this pot, and it was probably up to here with whey. Uh-huh. And I boiled it and boiled it and boiled it for hours, and I ended up with tiny, tiny little dish with some Brunost in it. Right, but I think the, the um, uh, Brunost usually mm. was made with uh, with cream as well. Uh, I looked into that, and actually, it depends where it's from. Sometimes it is, and sometimes mm-hmm. it isn't. There's two, yeah, two you, versions. Of- you, yeah, you get into uh, questions of definition. Um, mm. So the, 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 there's this school of thought that says there was a specific woman who invented uh, Brunost, mm. and that she did it by adding uh, cream and blah blah blah. And when I read that, I, I thought, well, it sounds like 
people were doing this without the cream originally or something. Mm. So, so um, that sounds like it's probably right, but I'm not enough of a cheese expert to say <laughs> anything more. No, I'm not. I'm not a cheese expert. Um, mainly make soft cheeses. I have made a few hard cheeses. Right. Um, but yeah, I think at a time when they wouldn't have had many sweet foods, you know, the Viking era. Yeah. To me, it seems likely that because if you've got your fire on anywhere and all you need to do is leave a pot of whey there for hours, yeah. it gives you a source of something sweet. Um, so to me, it seems quite likely that they might have done that. But yeah, if, if you had something like a soapstone kettle or something, because those would be those would be the right size. And there is there is a find of a pot um, that was burned and discarded, and it's been analysed, and it's got cheese in it or burnt cheese. Oh, interesting. But being as making cheese is just heating milk, I don't see how you'd get burnt cheese. So I think that maybe. It was more likely it was something like Brunost because okay, so, that's so, here, yeah. Yeah. so here's another interesting thing. Um, you know that uh, a lot of traditional, well, there, there's this uh, debate in in cheese making over mm. whether it's okay not to boil the cheese, right? And uh, then when you read about old cheese making, it turns out that a lot of these people were not boiling the cheese. Uh, and it's, it's the same thing I was saying about farmhouse brewing, that, that a lot of them mm. don't boil the beer, right? Mm. Um, when I looked into this, it, I found that one defined region that was not boiling the cheese yeah. is the same, the exact same region that's still not boiling the beer. Huh. And, and I, of course, you know, once you think about it, it's, well... In the time when they didn't have metal kettles, how were they boiling this cheese? If you don't need to boil cheese to make it, mm. in an era where boiling was really difficult, why would they be doing it? So probably all of the cheese originally was not boiled. Uh, but when did yeah. they start boiling it? I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, because I think you can, I mean, well, milk naturally turns to cheese, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. If you leave it out. Um, so I guess that's the no boil method of making it. And you can do the same with yogurt as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, traditionally in Norway, uh, when the farmers made um, sour cream, they, they had these containers that you, you put the cream into, you put them on a, on a shelf just under the, just below the ceiling, and they yeah. soured. That was that. Of course, uh, there would be a culture probably that was uh, you know living in these wooden vessels. But but still, they weren't adding anything. It just happened by itself, yeah. Mm. So should we talk a little bit about your book? Because you've got, I think you've got a few books, haven't you? Um, uh, it, but Yeah, but not particular. a lot in English. <laughs> so the only thing that's on the, on the English-speaking market is this book. Which, which is uh, on my list of books to buy, I must say. Uh... Yeah, thank you. But I, I should warn everyone listening that it was really, uh, it was really written for people who know how to brew. So it assumes uh, that you know how to brew and that you know what's normal in brewing. Uh, but it really, it does go through, uh, you know, the uh, the world that these traditional farmers were living in, which technologically is not far removed from the Viking Age, really. Mm. Um, how they were growing their grain, how they were turning it into malt, uh, and then also the brewing processes. Uh, and of course, that's where you hit the issue of the kettles quite soon. Mm. And so the book goes into all of the weird things that they deal did, you know, to deal with not having kettles. 
also deals with uh, the herbs that were used, what we know about that. And um, I, I also wanted to, to show why beer was so important. So I tried to talk about what were the other drinks that were available. So there is a bit on the uh, blonde, mm. uh, the weak beer, uh, mead and stuff like that as well. The other fermented drinks, I suppose I should say. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that one out. It's, as I say, it's on my list. I was Great. going to pick it up this week, but I never got around to it in the end. So um, I'll pick it up soon and let you know what I think. Yeah, it's not going away, so you can wait a couple yeah. of weeks. It'll be fine. <laughs> was that, um, is that self-published or is that for a publisher? No, no. Uh, the publisher is actually the publishing arm of the American Brewers Association. Oh, nice. So, but that, that that's also yeah. why the book yeah. assumes you know how to brew, right? Because that's their audience. Yeah, yeah. That's the people who buy this book. But it, uh, it's four hundred pages. It's mm. uh, quite detailed on what we know about all the different ways of brewing and the different types of beer and so on. And if I had to write it for, it, what's nice when you write for brewers in this situation is you can just say, so uh, there are farmhouse brewers that don't boil the beer, and all modern brewers will go instantly right and you don't have yeah. to go through a huge spiel to explain why this is absolutely amazing mm. and the same with all the other weird things that they do you don't have to first establish that this is very very weird and then yeah so yeah. storytelling wise for me as the author made it a lot easier to write the book yeah there's an assumed knowledge behind it already so yes yes yeah yeah so did you did you originally when you started off had you had any brewing experience? We never covered that, did we? No, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean not commercially. I um, mm. I brewed uh, beers with some home brewer friends, so I knew mm. how it worked. And I also took uh, a beer judging exam, where you learn the different flavors. Mm. Uh, you learn how beers well. You don't learn how beers brew because they just assume you already know. But what you do learn is. Uh, Okay, so if you taste green apples, that will probably mean that you made this mistake uh, and it's this chemical. If you taste butter, that means you made this mistake and it's this chemical. So uh, I wasn't an experienced brewer. I wasn't any expert on brewing, but I did know enough that when we started to talk to the, the traditional brewers, it's like, this is weird. This is really weird. What, what is this? So, so I, I suppose I was lucky. Um, I think if I had really been an experienced brewer and deeply into that mindset, mm. I would have met these brewers and just gone, this is crazy. I can't deal with this. But I, 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 I knew enough to know it was remarkable, not so much that I rejected sort of their point of view. I was really lucky. Yeah. I was lucky in, in a way. <laughs> but of course, mm. also, I, I always tasted the beer and that was... Um, that meant that whatever they were doing that was really weird, clearly they were doing something right because the beer was good. So there was it was always valid and validated in a sense. Mm. All right. So there's six questions that I tend to ask every guest. Uh, have you got a dream project? If you had an unlimited budget, what what would you do with it? Ooh. I guess uh, 
I guess I would start uh, collecting all the brewing yeast around the world that's currently not being uh, not being taken care of by anyone. So mm. uh, the work the work that I've done uh, has been yeah. to collect yeast in Norway and the Baltics, and uh, we've I think we've we've collected what we've been able to find. But in mm. Chuvashia in Russia, yeah, they say that. Every family that has a living grandmother is still brewing, and most of them seem to have their own yeast. So that must be, uh, and of course, if you think about it, um, there is also Africa where there is a lot of uh brewers. So, a friend of mine, yeah, Martin Thibault, he went to uh, he went to Ethiopia. Mm. and was able to sample some yeast, but there must be thousands of, of different brewing yeast. And then mm. you have the same in, in South America. So, and in Asia, now that I think about it. Mm. Yes, so, uh, and, and this is this is yeast that has adapted to brewing. Uh, so it's not wild yeast, it's, it's really yeast that um, you know, it's specialized for brewing, mm. and probably a lot of this is going to go away. Um, I was going to well, ask well, you. I mean, yeah, 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 do that because it's worth saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just to kind of expand on that. So, would that be for a preservation perspective of the yeast or more to see whether they're all tied together? So, whether you know, the same strains of yeast that are in America are also in Russia, right? Um, it's definitely for the preservation. I mean, that would that would be mm. worth it in itself. Uh, yeah. But of course, you also want to study them and see what they are. So, and, and that has two sides. So the first is we know that the, the Norwegian traditional yeast, for example, is um, it can handle a lot more alcohol. It ferments faster. It can handle many more temperatures and tricks as well. So it's mm. worth you know studying it to see what they are, what the aromas are, not least. Um, but yes, in a way that the yeast that they use in South America is not the same that they're using in Africa because. We can see differences in Norway just from uh, the west coast to the eastern inland part of the country. And then in the Baltics, there seems to be at least two different groups. And then, mm -hmm. so yeah, uh, probably there is actually a huge variety. Yeah. Okay. So the next question uh, that I ask everybody is do you think you could survive on a Viking Age diet? Well, uh, the first thing that strikes me is that, uh, you know, if I was a chieftain or uh, a warlord, I'm sure I could. I mean, uh, from what the, what the Ben the Rigstula poem says, these guys were eating uh, wheat bread and they had, you know, mm. fried birds and they were drinking wine. I'm I'm sure I could get by on that stuff. <laughs> uh, but you know, statistically. The chances mm. aren't great that I would be a chieftain, I don't think. Um, and then if I think of, you know, what did Norwegian peasants eat in the 19th century? 
barley porridge, sour milk, barley porridge, sour milk, maybe some flatbread, <laughs> maybe some um, uh, fermented fish. Yeah. Uh, which I, but you know, so it it sounds like it would be horrible to to or it would be difficult to make yourself eat that stuff, which I guess is sort of part of why you're asking this question. Hmm. Uh, but I've heard about what happens to people who, you know, come to the edge of starvation. In the end, you turn into a robot that will eat anything, even including stuff that isn't food. <laughs> so I think, I think, uh, I don't think you would starve to death because you, you, you would eat. Your body would make you eat, even if you uh, perhaps wouldn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> So, but you know, yeah. people did starve to death back then. There was a yeah. there was a particularly gruesome custom that was, uh, if you were a slave and you bought your freedom, and mm. then you couldn't feed your family. The law says that there is one thing that you can do. Uh, <laughs> you can go to the, you know, where people are buried, and and dig a grave and put your whole family in it. And the last person to survive, uh, the your previous owner has to feed this person and take care of them. <laughs> so, uh, I bet if yeah, it is it is very extreme. But what I'm yeah. getting at is, even though I think your body would make you eat the food, you know, hmm. you, it wouldn't take an enormous amount of bad luck for you to starve to death anyway. Hmm. It certainly happened to people. Yeah. It was a cheery thought at the end there. <laughs> Is there any food or drink that you would miss? Yeah. Um, well, I described um, 19th century peasant cuisine, right? So mm. I would miss pretty much everything that I ate, uh, <laughs> except possibly cheese, I guess. <laughs> probably after a while i would even miss stuff i don't like now hmm? yeah well i mean everything yeah, absolutely yeah. everything yeah yeah it's a difficult question to answer isn't it because like you say the, the food is so so far removed from from what they would have had yeah i get get a lot of yeah. answers tend to be things like caffeine and sugar well i gave up caffeine in february this year or march i guess it was so that's not an issue anymore I'm, I've, I've done that. So you're one step ahead of the rest of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm better prepared for the Viking past. Yeah. <laughs> What's the worst food you've ever eaten? Uh, I guess it must be Haukar, uh, the, uh, the Icelandic uh, Greenland shark that's, uh, that's dried. Yeah. I've fermented and dried. Yeah, yeah that was... Uh, I ate it basically because I'd heard about it and I decided, mm. okay, I have to try it. So after a lot of searching, we found it in a supermarket, like a little plastic box mm. uh, with these cubes of shark meat. And I took, a, yeah. you know, after breakfast, I took a toothpick and, and, um, and I ate one. And uh, we have a photo of this because my daughter was standing, you know, just behind me mm. hold, holding her nose. And she's like... <laughs> <laughs> absolutely a uh, fantastic shot uh but mm. i mean i uh, i hated it i i felt sick 
all the rest of that day. The, the first thing I did after I ate that, that cube was I went and I brushed my teeth three times to get rid of the flavor. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice. I, I talked to a guy yeah. who, who had eaten it. He was, uh, I forget where it was. And he said he threw up the, the first two times that he ate it. And then the third time that he ate it, it was on a bet. And then uh, he actually liked it. Uh, so, so now he eats it once a year. And, and I have to say, um, I mean, the, the, the ammonia and the fermented fish smell and all that stuff is, is, is really, really awful. Uh, mm. But the, the texture was really nice. Uh, I, I remember I, I was thinking about this texture for several days afterwards. That it was, it was uh, well, that was, that was a nice part. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And you yeah. didn't have the snaps to wash it down. There's normally the Icelandic snaps that you. That's what this guy was saying, that the third time mm. he washed it down with snaps and, and that really helped. Mm. And now he thought this was important, but. I, this was breakfast. <laughs> with breakfast, and also I don't drink hard liquor at all. So uh, no, okay, no. yeah, we had it out in. Uh, we were doing one of the tours around Iceland on a bus, and we were on like a mini bus. And the guy drives out, and there was just a shed in the middle of a field. And he pulls up, goes into the shed, gets a little lunchbox out with the little cubes of. Everyone gets a toothpick, and everyone had a little bit of schnapps. And it was right. Make sure you eat the shark first. <laughs> <laughs> yes what's the most memorable meal you've ever had I, uh, I guess I guess a really memorable meal is uh, one that I had when we were traveling through western Norway looking for mm. traditional brewers so a specialty in uh, in that part of the country is um, steamed and smoked sheep's head and uh well several things made this meal memorable so for one thing um we were at the place where they produced them so mm. it's a really it's a really beautiful farm and they serve it in this uh 17th century old food storehouse the thing is you you, you sit down and uh there is a face on your plate yes. looking at you and that's really quite unnerving um yeah. But I re I remember I uh, you know you see the face and you go well okay let me let me get potatoes and mashed rutabaga and and you've done that but the face mm. is still there and you're supposed to eat it and I I uh, I couldn't do it so <laughs> the host of course he's seen this many times before mm. so he uh, he says you should start with the eye and I'm like oh, I'm certainly Ooh. not going to start <laughs> with the eye uh, but no. but then he. Uh, he, he he just took his fork, uh, took my fork, and uh, took the eye out and said, "Well, you better eat it before it gets cold." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, doing mm. you just take the fork, stick it in your mouth." But it it was nothing special. The eye really, it was like chewing fat. It didn't yeah. taste of anything special, or so. And then, having done that, I sort of got over the squeamishness, I guess I can say. Mm. So then I, I dove in. And it, it really is nice. I mean, it's just very, yeah. very tender uh, sheep's meat. It tastes like normal, lightly smoked sheep's meat. 
and goes perfectly with the traditional beer that they also serve. Mm. But it's uh we've actually we've actually made it here at home a few times after that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 uh that's something I would recommend. But there is this the first time there is really is this hurdle you have to get over. Over here it's a little difficult to get hold of heads. Due to sort of the legislation yeah. behind sort of BSE and things, we struggle to get them. We've had goat's heads before. Um right. but uh, it takes quite a lot of effort to actually get one. Yeah. Oh we don't eat the brain so that's mm. i think they remove it so that's not really an issue um mm. and i think for the producer it's really easy to get heads right because when you when you slaughter the the lamb the head is just waste normally mm. i think they're they, incinerated here to be honest that's a bit of a waste yeah. to be honest yeah yeah I, I i know a goat farmer and we've through them we've managed to get them before but it takes quite a few hurdles so uh huh. strange i think we can get pigs heads but not not sheep or goats i guess probably not cows either so yeah it's very limited definitely not cows huh yeah <laughs> if they're worried about bse but like why yeah. would pigs be okay it's a bit strange yeah I've definitely seen pig's heads on sort of menus at butchers and things. So, But maybe yeah. people are used to eating pig's heads, but not the others. Maybe that's part of it. Mm. Because I don't think I've seen pig's heads served or available to buy here. And like I've had the whole animal before, like a suckling pig, and that comes with the head. But if I get a whole goat yeah, or something, that's true. it's headless. So there's something, for some reason yeah, that we can yeah yeah that's true there's also this traditional way of presenting it with the with an apple in the mouth right mm. yeah so yeah. pig's head yeah. kind of is a thing in the way that these yeah. are yeah all right so the last question i'll ask you and then i'll let you let you get on with your day the premise is you've died um and your family and friends are preparing um your burial and they're going to put some things in the grave with you what food and drink are you taking to valhalla Oh, uh, well, I'm definitely taking uh, Norwegian traditional beer. There's no question about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but what food? I don't know. I guess they would give me sausage with mustard or something. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm into different types of mustard. So every time we go abroad, we, we buy whatever we can get. Okay, yeah. But I'm the only only person in the house who eats it. So that's another reason why they would put it in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. That's a bonus for you because no one else eats it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Limitless supply. Yeah. Yep. I had like, um, I came to um, Bora in Norway last year uh, to a festival and they had a chef making different food and it had things like moose sausage. Oh, Nice. And like wild boar and that kind of thing. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there is a lot of um, variety that you can do with, with sausage. Mm. We actually, um, we've been making sausage a few times, but we haven't done it often enough to really get good at it. Yeah. So we, uh, you're supposed to, um, uh, you know, recipes say things like you should boil the sausage and we're beginning to think that, no, you shouldn't boil the sausage. I think you lose uh, some of the fat. Mm. So, um, 
Traditionally, that's how we think they probably cooked them. To boil them? The, the Saxons and the Vikings, yeah, because they would have boiled most of their food anyway because it's a good way of making sure things are cooked through. Um, and what we actually do now is we, we boil them just briefly because then you don't burn them on the barbecue because they're semi-cooked already when they go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But boiling, uh, there's an issue with boiling, which is that... Um, Historically, kettles were extremely expensive. So I think a lot of people didn't have those. Um, yeah. In, uh, in the Norwegian towns, um, they, uh, they had actually kettles that were made of soapstone. So they mm. were, uh, <laughs> they were mined, really mined out of the mountain and, and carved into a kettle-like shape. Uh, and the reason was that metal was so expensive, basically. Mm. So I wonder about that. I mean, yeah. uh, what you said stands to reason, but if they didn't have... Um, yeah, it's having the vessel to cook it in, I guess. It's going to depend yeah. on, on your wealth and stuff, isn't it? Yes, it will. All right, so we'll wrap up here. Um, so thank you, everyone, for watching. And um, Oh, quickly, actually, um, is there anywhere that people can follow you online? Are you on Instagram or Facebook? I think you've got a website, haven't you? I have a, a, a blog um, and I also have a, a Twitter account and a Facebook page. So I can be followed on all three of those places. If you want to send me some links to those, what I'll do is when yeah. I put the video out, I'll pop a description underneath. Sure, um, sure. So people can find you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, well, thanks everyone for watching and I'll see you next time. Bye. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening.